This is the Arc of Change with Donzel Leggett, a podcast from the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition, an organization dedicated to eradicating racism and hate and spreading anti-racism. Listen as Donzel talks about the relevant topics that will inspire you and help build your capability to take action and change the world. Because none of us are doing enough as long as racism still exists. And now, here's your host, Donzel Leggett. Hello and welcome to the fifth episode of season three of The Arc of Change with Donzel Leggett. In this episode, I welcome to the show attorney, philanthropist, and author Braden Anderson, who made history and headlines in 2015 as the first Division I men's college basketball player to compete while also being a full-time law school student. He'll share his amazing and inspiring story, and we'll discuss his new book, Black Resilience, The Blueprint for Black Triumph in the Face of Racism, and discuss what it will take to overcome racism and create true equality in America. Now let's get started with our show. So I am Donzel Leggett, host of the Arc of Change podcast and founder of the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition, or ARC. Our vision at ARC is to build a racism-free world, and our mission is to provide inspiration, education, and support for you to transform, practice, and spread anti-racism and anti-hate. This begins with our three-step process for personally transforming to anti-racism. The first step is erasing your ignorance about racism and hate. The second step is all about educating yourself about anti-racism. And the third step is building the character and confidence to stand up, speak out, and take action to spread anti-racism and anti-hate and make positive change happen. As I've said many times, each and every one of us can make a difference. No matter how big or small, no matter where you come from, no matter how much money you have or lack of resources you have, no matter your background, how difficult circumstances that you may have come from, you can make a difference. At ARC, we believe that once you make that transformation, you can then start transforming others in your network to create a mini movement that becomes a big movement, a massive movement that then helps us achieve our vision of creating a world that's free of racism and hate. But all of that has to start with you believing that you can transform yourself and actually committing to doing it by not accepting the status quo, by not accepting what others may think or expect from you, but by creating your own reality, by standing up, speaking out, and most importantly, taking action to make positive change happen, to make a positive difference by being a living example of anti-racism. My guest on this episode is one of the best examples of this. Braden Anderson is an attorney, a philanthropist, and an author. He's the author of the new book, Black Resilience, the Blueprint for Black Triumph in the Face of Racism. And he leads the movement, hashtag Black Resilience. He made headlines in 2015 as the first Division I men's college basketball player to compete while also being a full-time law school student. 
going on to be hired by one of the largest and most prestigious law firms in the world. He's both the founder of a nonprofit foundation and an entrepreneur. And although he enjoys family life and spends as much time with them as he possibly can, he continues to grind and strive to give back by being a role model for proving that the impossible is possible. That's because he's been homeless. He's been the victim of abuse and hateful racism, bias, and prejudice. But he has never accepted victimhood and relentlessly stands up, speaks out, and takes action to help drive Black resilience and illustrate how to move beyond Black Lives Matter. My good friend, the inspiring Braden Anderson, joins me next. The Arc of Change podcast is brought to you by the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition. Visit us at joinarcc.org to learn more about Arc and join our movement. All right, welcome back to the Arc of Change. And as promised, we're joined by our very esteemed guest, my good friend, the inspiring Braden Anderson. Braden, welcome to the show. Welcome to the Arc of Change. How you doing, my friend? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on, Donzo. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, man. Hey, uh, I know you. I know a lot of, uh, of, of the people out there know you as well, but there may be some people in our audience who don't. Let's start off by you just taking some time to tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, that type of thing. Yeah, for sure. So I grew up in, in Western Canada in a small town um, and, and, you know, had it tough, was homeless for periods of time, dealt with abuse at home, um, racist teachers, tied to trees by skinheads, just dealt with a lot of adversity and a lot of trauma. And, you know, I, I essentially, there was a moment where I had to kind of look in the mirror and make a decision, right? And the decision was, am I going to let my victimhood define me? Or am I going to figure out some way to transcend the fact that I've been victimized, right? Um, I think that's really important. We'll get into that later. But, you know, luckily with that attitude and, and some changes I was able to make in terms of my mentality, what, right, wasn't able to change my environment right away, right? Yeah. Um, that is something that happens over time. But based on just focusing on variables that I could control, even though I was in a really difficult environment, I was able to, you know, become a, an All-American basketball player, was able to, you know, get a full-ride scholarship to, to play at Kansas and then Fresno State, um, was able to graduate in three years and become the first person to ever play full, you know, Division One ball um, while in law school and then get law school paid for. And then I joined Sidley Austin, the Obama firm, where Michelle and Brock met um, to, to be an attorney and to kick off my career. And then I, uh, so over a year ago, um, moved to Kirkland, uh, which is the largest law firm by revenue in the world. And I represent banks and public companies in connection with government investigation. And um, I also started a foundation called the Black Resilience Foundation wrote a book called Black Resilience, and uh, I own some businesses. Um, so it's been, it's been a heck of a journey. Man, you, you, you have got a lot going on for a young guy 
an incredible story. And I said at the beginning, inspiring story. But let's let, let me go back to one thing. You said you grew up in Canada and you talked about the difficulties you dealt with for a lot of Americans. Uh, we think of Canada as this you know, non-racist place. Uh, th- this place that, uh, you know, in history has been, you know, during during slavery, escaped slaves would go to Canada. Uh, people think of Canada as a great place where diversity is accepted. Toronto, the melting pot, really the new melting pot, more diverse than than New York. But you grew up there and you experienced some very difficult times. Tell us about that. And what are the differences between America and Canada? that You've been to both. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, you know, Toronto is is probably different. I've never lived in in Toronto, so I can't really speak to Toronto. Yeah. And speak to Western Canada, though, and specifically Alberta. Um, and I think one thing to just be aware of when you're considering bias and what that is, yeah. right, it, it's really, it, it doesn't discriminate, right? And there's certain ingredients that are going to create a potential for bias. And it's not that the people are better in one place or worse in another place. It's not that there's something in the water that makes people racist, right? It's certainly you could talk about history and, and certain things that have happened in America yeah. uh, as, as being a source for some of the angst uh, and, and conflict between black and white people. But I think in Canada, what's part of what drives the problem is that it's not seen as a problem. Um, and the reason why it's not seen so much as a problem is because black people in Alberta don't have numbers, mm. right? I, I really liken it akin to being behind enemy line yeah. with, without backup, okay. right? So when you're the only black person or the only black family in an entire town and you're mistreated, someone calls it the N-word, says, get this N-word out of my classroom, right? Or you get jumped for no reason whatsoever, and you call the cop, there's just a different sense of, of how those situations are dealt with. Um, it's a lot of blaming the person, right? How, how, and we see that in, in America, but it's typically called out if we catch it on video or yeah. there's no dispute of what happened. It's, no, no, that's racist. You can't do that. You can't say that, Yeah, right? Um, but I think people got away with way too much in Alberta just because there wasn't anyone to call it out and say, no, that's wrong. You can't do that. When you're one kid saying, hey, this person said this to me or, or hey, this happened, this wasn't right. I think there was a, um, a tend to, to push things under the rug, a tend to kind of just try to avoid conflict and say, yeah, you know, it's, it's fine. You shouldn't have said that. Or, you know, just, just kind of massage it over and, and not really take it as seriously as it should be taken. Man, you, the things you've dealt with, um, again, are, are just hard to describe. We'll get into more of it, but you, you, you talked about a lot in that first opening piece, being homeless, being abused, um, dealing with that type of being behind enemy lines. Um, but you, you cope through it now that you, you're still a young guy, but you've learned a lot since then. Looking back, is, are there any messages you would tell your younger self, your teenage self, that you would, you would want to make sure that, that that young person understood and learned? Because there's, there's young people that listen to this podcast that are dealing with some of the things you're dealing with that you dealt with back then. Yeah, for sure. Um, th- that one's easy. I, I think the hardest piece, before you can start you know, taking 
taking inventory of what you can control, which is my favorite catchphrase, right? That's my thing. And it, it really is the secret. And we'll talk more about that and unpack that. But yeah. I think before you can even get into any of that in terms of helping yourself, you, you have to look in the mirror and be able to have a, a very difficult conversation with yourself. And it starts with accepting that you have a lot of things in your life, a lot of variables, a, a lot of aspects of your environment that are not your fault. And it, it's not in your control. And, and like, you didn't create that. It's mm-hmm. not your fault. Like understanding that being a, being victimized as a kid, especially, right? Um, as a child, you, you didn't ask to be born. You didn't ask to be born into that family, live in that neighborhood, have people do X, Y, Z to you. And you have to be able to kind of have that acceptance where even though the, it's not my fault that I've been a victim, I don't identify as a victim. And so therefore it's my responsibility to do something about it, right? It's about making that step that I'm going to do something about this, even though it's not my fault that I'm in this situation, because I have too much love for myself to let this defeat. I have too much promise, too much potential, too much I want to do. This, this isn't who I am. And, you know, whether it's bias, somebody not seeing that identity, seeing all that potential that you have, yeah. or whether it's abuse or just poverty, right? I've yeah. dealt with all of those things. Yes. They're all extremely difficult. And you have to acknowledge, you know, poverty is not my fault that, that I, I don't have any money, that my parents don't have any money. It's not my fault that I'm being abused at home. It's not my fault that I'm being treated in a biased way, right? Um, And But I still want to be successful. So how am I going to still be successful even though these things are happening? I think that's the hardest jump. Um, But I would just tell kids, like, that's what you have to make that mental jump. You must um, take a moment to feel the pain, to feel that it hurts. Feel the sadness of, of the fact that you're in a situation that's not fair. It's not fair. Life isn't fair. And, you know, anybody who tells you that it is, you know, it isn't living in the real world, right? It's not fair, but it's okay. You can still win. You mentioned the word identity. Uh, this is obviously something that's very important right now where people, especially young people, want to make sure that they are in touch with their identity and, and People look at them the way they want to be identified. And, you know, my kids are biracial. We talk a lot about identity uh, and and what it means to them. Um, What's the best way for you to communicate your true identity? Well, I think identity means so many different things to different people. Honestly, for me, it started with when I had that conversation with myself was, who do I want to be? If my identity is not a homeless, abused black kid who gets treated, you know, it, uh, just treated poorly, right? Like, what is my identity then, right? What, who do I want to be? How do I want people to see? And I think for me, when because I was in such a dire situation, I wanted to think of something that was kind of extreme. And, and honestly, that's another piece of advice that I would give people who are in a tough situation. When you're dealing with that kind of stuff, like heavy, heavy, heavy trauma, yeah. if you're going to climb out of it, it's got to be for something awesome. It's got to be for something that's really going to get you up and get you up in the morning and get you, you know, get you moving in the right direction. Cause it's, you have a hard path 
ahead of a ridiculous path, not like the paths of those, you know, who are privileged, who, who may be your peers that you're seeing their path. You don't have that path. And so it can be really difficult. Um, and so you have to have a goal, an, an identity goal that is pretty amazing, yeah. um, pretty extraordinary, uh, so that it's going to be worth it. Because for me, I literally went through the mental analysis and it was, you know, and there's nothing against becoming a nurse, by the way, but my mentality first was I actually wanted to become a doctor, right? Mm -hmm. And so I was thinking, should I become a nurse or a physician's assistant or a doctor? I needed some sort of academic career goal. Yeah, um, I had the basketball piece down, but I needed to improve my academics. And so I needed some sort of goal to assign to it to make it matter, right? To make me care. And, you know, my thought process was, you know, it's pretty dang hard to become a nurse and a physician's assistant. It's pretty hard to do. It's not yes. easy. And based on my current <laughs> status in life, uh, homeless, abused, all this kind of stuff, you know, not the best grades at the time, it's going to be pretty hard regardless of what I try to do. And so I might as well go for, go for it all. Go yes. for the hardest. Go for, the, you know, the, the pie in the sky. And, and so for me, initially, when I got started getting my grades up, it was with the thought of becoming a doctor. Throughout that process, I eventually realized that, that becoming a lawyer would, would better suit my skill set and, and interests uh, and, and the subjects that, that I really excelled at academically. And so, you know, I set, again, the highest goal that I could imagine at the time, and which was pretty high. I mean, I set the goal of I wanted to become an attorney for one of the largest law firms in the world, in New York City right? And represent public companies and banks, right? Like you say this kind of stuff. Um, but it was completely unattainable at the time that I initially set these goals for, right? But if you set a goal that's exciting enough, no matter what happens to you, it's worth it. You'll, you'll figure it, you'll find it. You'll find the guts, you'll find the heart to keep fighting. Yeah. I mean, that, that idea of setting those goals and make them feel attainable for others and I think in, in your book, you talk so much about why, why do especially African-Americans strive in sports and gear towards sports. And, and it's you, you think about it, it's infinitesimal that you could make it to the NFL or NBA versus the, the pool that's out there. But the odds are even smaller, smaller to be a lawyer, one of the largest law firms like you are, or to be a Fortune 500 executive or to be a doctor. But we can prove that that's a possibility for the younger folks coming up and you're doing that. So thank you. We're going to get into a lot more heavy stuff, but let me switch gears to something a little bit lighter. Uh, a lot of people listen to podcasts, love when we talk about sports. Obviously you played division one, one of the, some of the best schools out there, Kansas is of course. Um, we just finished March madness. Um, tell us a little bit about your basketball career and your tournament experience or your, your experiences playing division one and what March madness feels like. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think, you know, it, it's the, the college basketball scene. It's, it's, it's a lot of hard work. You know, I will focus on some of the benefits of it, but it, it, it's hard. Um, you know, high school basketball is a lot of fun. It's a lot of just, you know, running up and down and, and you're better, you know, especially if you're going to end up going D1, you're typically way better than everybody you're playing against. Yep. Right. And so it's just, a, it's a lot of fun. You're a star, right? You know, you get fed the ball, you score every time. Um, you know, college is a different, it's a different beast, right? You got eight hours 
of, of basketball related activity uh, on average per day. And you got to balance that with an academic schedule, trying to have a social life, right? Um, and, and catch up with, with extracurriculars. I mean, you just don't have much, much time. Um, but there's nothing better than the feeling of, of playing in a big game in front of a big crowd yeah. and, and sinking a, you know, a huge bucket, right? Um, because you're doing it for everybody, right? The, the best feeling is when you're on a team, you're working towards this common goal and you're able to, to, to contribute in a meaningful way and to see the excitement in your teammates' face and in their eyes and, and you, you hear the crowd roaring and <laughs> feel all that excitement. Um, it's a special thing. Um, and, you know, being able to make it to March Madness with, with Seton Hall and win the Big East Tournament in 2015 was, um, was a tremendous experience. Um, you know, we actually beat the Villanova team that went on to win it all. Oh, wow. um, you know, we beat them in the Big East and then in the tournament, they won it all. But, um, you know, it's, you just got to think about basketball and, and any sports related, you know, scholarship that you may have an opportunity to get as a vehicle. Yeah. It's not the end. It's not a destination. It's a vehicle that you can have a chance to get into, um, that can take you places, but you got to be really careful about where you're setting the GPS and make sure that you're going to the right places and you, you're all on the same page with, with where that road leads. Absolutely, man. Can you tell us about the, uh, what was your, your, your finest moment or your most exciting or crazy story that you can tell us about that time? You know, I, I think for me, the, the best moment that I had was, um, you know, when I first, because I was initially a partial qualifier at Kansas and was able to, to go to Fresno State, get an opportunity to, to kind of get to full qualifying status. Yeah. You know, it took a while, it took a semester or so. And when I had one of my first games back, you know, where I was eligible to play, it was against San Diego State. Oh, wow. And, um, you know, it, it was it was a big game. It was at San Diego State, big, big rival for Fresno. And, um, you know, I, I got in the game and I just, I got hot, you know. <laughs> I, think I, I, I think I put up like 12 points in like, seven minutes or something wow. like that right like i didn't you know he just put me in near the end right because i hadn't you know been caught up to speed it was i just had become eligible and so that was a really good feeling to get in the game after having sat out for so long and just start putting up buckets yeah uh, in a really short time period it uh you know was the culmination of of a lot of work that, and then i would say that, the second Yes. Best moment was being invited to the Canadian Olympic development oh, team. Oh, sweet! Um, in 2013, spending the summer with, with Steve Nash and and just a host of of great Canadian NBA players. You know, just work on work on our game and um, you know talk about you know, what we wanted to accomplish. And, uh, you know, a lot of those, guys, I think, literally nearly every single one of those guys is still in the NBA today. You know, when I turn on a game, I, I typically see, see one of my uh, former uh, Olympic teammates. That's incredible. I mean, Canada has, has, has really become a basketball power, which is really incredible over the last, like, 15 years, man. And you mentioned San Diego State this year in the Final Four. They made their first. I think this is the combination of the the, you know, the, the lowest, most low seeds. I don't know the best way to say that, but I think we had, what, two fives, a four, and a nine. Do you think this level of um, – uh, 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 parity in colleges here to stay with these experienced teams 
that play a longer time together seem to be having a little bit of an upper hand? You know, it depends who you talk to. I mean, if you talk to a lot of college coaches in the game right now, they'll tell you that it's all about, you know, um, you know, it's all about the, the, the rights to, you know, to, to promote, right. It's all about the name and likeness, the name, image and likeness. Yep. And I, you know, NIL, um, yeah. and that's why it, it, but it's been a distraction. And so the better, the higher ranked team, you know, their players have been distracted because they're making money now. And I don't really buy that at all. Um, you, you know, the same way that the NBA is able to keep their guys focused and ready to play a game. Yep. Uh, college coaches need to be prepared to do the same thing. Absolutely. Um, you can't have an industry where you don't have to pay the talent. Right. You show me an industry where you don't have to pay the talent. Right. You're showing me incredible margins. I want in on that business. Right. <laughs> Who wouldn't want to be in on, right. on that business? Right. But it's not sustainable. It was never right in the first place. I've talked a lot about that, wrote a lot on that topic. But I think, you know, it's it's incredible to have a tournament like like March Madness, where you have an opportunity for a team like Princeton. To yep. knock out Arizona. I mean, it's just it's just awesome. Right. Um, yeah. And it's something that um, you know, when when players are able to see that, that hey, anybody can be anybody. Yep. And you know, <laughs> I I firmly believe that. Right. Like it doesn't matter. Like yep. David can beat Goliath on any given Saturday, any given Sunday. <laughs> um, and it, it was it was fun to watch this year. Yeah, I'm laughing because I'm just happy that you didn't use Fairleigh Dickinson beating Purdue, which is my alma mater. <laughs> uh, maybe maybe you didn't want to go after my man uh, Edie because he's a I Canadian. I won't do that. I won't do that to you. <laughs> awesome, man. Hey, well, thank you for for indulging us and in talking about sports. We're going to keep it there a little bit, but but get a little bit more serious. You made history by being the first active Division One player to actually attend full time law school. While playing, that is unbelievable. Tell us how that came about, and 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 how you made. What was your what were your coaches' reaction? Your player teammates. Tell us about that. Yeah, so I mean, it, it started from you know a, a place of sadness and trauma, right? So um, after spending that summer with the Canadian Olympic team, I was getting ready to start my my first full season at, at Fresno State. Have a great year. I wanted to go one and done. And about a month before the season starts, I break my neck in a car accident oh, man. caused by a drunk driver. Ugh. And, you know, I'm bedridden. I had a 0.06% chance of making full recovery, right? Like, I- I'm in the hospital for over a month. Um, lost 60, 70 pounds, right? Had to learn to sit up again, walk again. Right? My future in basketball was was completely uncertain at that time like just being able to walk again and move around and just be a normal human being was was higher up on the priority list than being able to play wow and you start to realize like even as somebody you have to remember at that time i i still feel like i'm I'm playing with house money right like i'm at this place where man i was homeless i was dealing with this i was dealing with that and now i'm i have this like, what do I have? I guess that became the question. It was like, wait, like, what do I have left? Do, have I preserved any of the hard work and the scratching and clawing and, and the fact that I escaped all the traumas that I've escaped? Do I, like, how can I ensure that I'm still going to be successful if I can't bounce a ball in it? Right. right. Like that became a really real scary thought. 
of how do I preserve the value of all the hard work and, and effort that I put in to get where I'm at. Yeah. And, you know, so, you know, my, my thought process was, listen, I'm still on scholarship. Um, you know, hopefully they'll give me a chance to, to rehab and see at least how it works. I'll get a red shirt year this year. Clearly not playing this year. Can't, can't even walk in November. So, you know, we'll see what happens. But in the meantime, how do I maximize the value of the scholarship, knowing that I don't know if I'm going to be able to make a full recovery and play? Right. I don't know. Right. So right. my thought process was, okay, there's no limit to how many credits you can take was my first thought. I realized later that there is a limit, but not a scholarship limit. There's just a limit that's arbitrarily set because they think if you take more than those, than that number, you're probably not going to pass. And it's just too many, right? <laughs> right. Just yeah. too many classes. That's right. And so the, the, the limit was 15. It was kind of the, the, the soft limit, you can take up to 18 yeah. without getting like written approval, right? You could pretty much get 18 if you needed 18. Yeah. Um, I ended up needing 33 for three sem semesters in a row in order to graduate as soon as possible. Okay, right? let's pause the there. 33 credits per semester for three semesters yep. in a row. Yep. Needed 33, which wow. is, you know, it's serious, right? I mean, it's it's serious. It was. But a normal full time is fifteen credit hours. A normal, a heavy load is is eighteen. Twenty one is crazy. Thirty three is unbelievable. And these are law school classes. Wow. Well, so this was still in at Fresno State. This oh, is see, just undergrad. to graduate early. Okay. Or, oh right? yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Graduate yeah. early. Got it. So when you're thinking about okay, if I could graduate early, yes. right? Then the next thought is, I'll still have extra years of eligibility if I'm able to make a recovery and be able to play. Yes. Right? Yes. So at that point, I already knew I wanted to go to law school. So I'm thinking, okay, if I graduate in one more year, right, then, or a year and a half, right, whatever I can get done from that point on, you know, starting when I was able to actually start getting it done, yeah, it was about one year, right? And so it was like, okay, if I can get that done, two two and a half years of, of classes done in one year, then that'll free me up to be able to get law school paid for potentially. Yeah. And at this point, I didn't know that nobody had done it. <laughs> right. And so um I later realized, you know, I started to really start pushing hard. Um, you know, the the fall of of my last year and, and Certainly in, you know, December going into the beginning of spring was really hitting the pavement hard. And you know, I got a lot of notes. Right? I, I made phone calls to hundreds, literally, no exaggeration, hundreds of college coaches uh, across the country. And, you know, started there. I wanted to, because I figured, hey, I need to get the basketball scholarship first. Yeah. And then I'll try to get into the law. Yeah. Right. And so I took the LSAT. I was like, okay, we'll try to get some interest on the basketball side and then I'll apply yep. the first thought process that became really, that was really difficult. That didn't work because they would call the law school and they're calling somebody they've never spoken to before. They don't have a relationship. Right. They don't have any sort of rapport with one, one another. And so you can imagine a Dean of a law school, picking up the phone, talking to the head basketball coach. <laughs> and you want what you want to bring in a basketball player to go to law school. No, that's like, that's crazy. Coach. Like, that's not going to work. We've never done that. Like, 
I think he should just play basketball. Like you know, <laughs> it's, the schedule's insane. Yeah. It's almost like the condescending. Like, yes. do you know how hard law school is? Right, right? like right. that kind of thing. <laughs> and you know, so I just would get calls back and texts back from different coaches. Like, no, they, it's not going to work. There's no yeah. way to do it. Yeah. And so then I started taking a different approach. I was like, okay, well, that's not working. I've done that. I don't know, fifty times, gotten those. Um, maybe if I apply to these law schools. And and get into some of these law schools, yeah. then I have a little bit more leverage, and then they might take me more seriously. That hey, he already got in, right? He can, he already want them, right? And so I started to try that method. That also didn't work, um, you know, because <laughs> some people on the basketball side would see the schedule and say, "There's just no way." We'd have to rearrange practice. We'd have to do this. It it, it would take a lot of rearrangement, right? Yeah. Which which coaches don't want to do, especially for a guy who just broke his broke his neck you're not sure whether he's going to be a superstar or right. role player or what what's going to happen with this guy yep um and so that was obviously making things more difficult as well um you know but eventually i found a perfect pair right a, a school where the current dean of the law school was actually the interim athletic director oh. and had actually hired the head coach wow i've seen all the time kevin willard yeah um and, you know, we sat down and talked about it and he, it, you know, his name's Dean, Dean Hobbs. And he essentially was like, you know what, this would be really cool, <laughs> right? Like, this would be a really cool thing if we're able to pull this off. He's yeah. like, I don't know if we can. Yeah. Um, but you seem passionate enough and sure enough that you can do this. Yeah. That I don't want to stand in your way. Right. And so we might look like fools. We might look smart. Yeah, uh, but we're gonna find out. I'm, we're gonna work with you to get this done. And that was like yeah, the cool. coolest moment ever. Uh, I don't think I've, with the exception of like the birth of my kid, like that. Yeah. That was an exciting moment to hear that and be like, wow. And then there's the realization that wow, you got 16, 17 hours a day of mandatory things on your schedule, yeah, <laughs> seven days a week. And so then the next piece was okay. How am I gonna get this done? Man, incredible. First, I got to tell you, I, I read your book, and we'll start talking about your book here in a second. And I read the part about the, the accident, horrific accident that you were in. I didn't put together the timeline that that happened in the middle of all of this while you were in university. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't catch that. So that makes this story even more inspiring and incredible. Uh, and then just to hear your your strategy of how to make this work. By the way, did did the uh, did did Seton Hall did they understand that this would be making history? Did they know that no one else had ever done it before? Yeah, they did. Uh, you know, I think as, as time went on, right? If the person was like, "Okay, we'll let them let them do it," started to get out, then the press started to take notice that, that this was going to happen. And press okay. started to get interested, and I think once the press started to get involved, you know, we all kind of started to understand the, the gravity yeah. of. Of, of what was going to take place, and what that meant, right? And, um, you know, I think for me, I always in the back of my mind kind of knew that this was going to be a big deal. Um, once I figured out that it, it was not a thing that people do, right, then it became even more important that uh, that I was, number one, able to get, get the opportunity to do it. Yeah. But number two, that I was successful because when you're a pioneer, you will either ruin an opportunity for everyone who comes yeah. next, or you're going to make it more attainable because uh, you you can help set a precedent. And um, the coolest part of it all has been, you know, 
future generations of student athletes who have approached me and sought advice and, and been able to do the same thing through sharing, you know, articles about what I was able to do with their athletic directors and law school administrators. Cool, man. That That's unbelievable story. Unbelievable. We could stop there. And, and this would have been a fantastic episode. But uh, let's talk about the book. So I read the book, as I said, tremendous book, easy read for anyone who wants to pick it up. It's it's approachable, it's readable, and it tells real stories. Uh, some of the things Braden's talking about, but a little bit more detail. And he gets into some really, really good detail about some of the things I'm asking in this question. Because in the book, you talk about, you know, how um, in the book is called, you know, Black Resilience. But you talk about, um, you know, dealing with all kinds of bias. And you've talked a little bit about that. But obviously, there's movements like Black Lives Matter that are trying to also deal with this. How is what you're talking about in your book different than Black Lives Matter? Yeah, for sure. I, I think you have to think about what movements are about, what the point of each movement is, because there's a purpose, right? And you have to be really clear about what the purpose is in order to evaluate whether it's successful. Um, one, you know, I majored in forensic behavioral science and one class that I really loved was the psychology of testing. Right? It was essentially a class about testing and how you actually test things properly. Um, and what metrics are you looking for? And it all comes down to, you know, how well did you test what you were trying to test for, right? Which sounds obvious, but you have to be specific, right? You have to be specific where you're not going to have an accurate sense of, of whether you're being effective or, or not. And I think with Black Lives Matter, the focus is unequiv- uh, unequivocally uh, awareness, right? It's an awareness-based movement. It's about making white people more aware of their biases, making white people more aware of how severe the problem with racism is in this country. Um, And it's been very effective at doing that, right? Um, But then you have to look at what the consequences of that is, right? So it's been a very effective awareness campaign. Everybody knows Black Lives Matter. Everyone's heard of it, uh, unless you live literally in a cave. Um, and probably most cave dwellers yeah. know it. Um, and so you got to think about what's the consequence. Yeah, the consequence yeah. amongst many white people has been positive. It's been, oh wow, I saw things in a way I didn't see them before. Wow, I saw literally dozens and dozens of videos of black people being murdered yeah. for no reason by police. Holy crap! Right, like a lot of people saw that and were like. I can't believe that this happened. Um, and then you had another reaction from around, unfortunately, 50%, right? It's like 50-50. Like 50% of, of white Americans had a totally different reaction. Yeah. They have a visceral reaction. They actually dislike black people even more. <laughs> they dislike the liberals more. And they think it's a completely political thing. Yeah. They don't buy into it whatsoever. And it's actually worsened and increase the tension uh, between black and white communities in this country. Mm. And then, and you just set that aside. That's the white people thing. And, and really, Black Lives Matter was about impacting and influencing white people. That's what it was about. And I think part of what the issue with that is, is that you kind of miss the consequences to the black people, yeah. right? Um, I don't think it was ever thought of that it was going to lead to real 
legislative change, and it largely has not. Um, there's a Pew Research poll that came out uh, and found that nearly 70% of Black Americans do not believe that Black Lives Matter, the movement, the increased attention on racism has Im impacted their life in a positive way whatsoever, right? So 70%, results mm -hmm. are in. Yeah. Been a long time, been, right, three years, yep. and nothing, right? Mm -hmm. So that's concerning. But what's more concerning is what folks are really not talking about. And that's what my book is about, and, and I try to solve that problem. The biggest problem is the consequence to Black mental health, yeah. right? So when you have a narrative that's completely focused, and it's been this way for decades, a completely focused narrative on white people, influencing white people, white conversations about racism, how to help black people, these victims, these poor people who need help, they keep on, right? It is a very disempowering narrative for the people who actually like it, right? Because we're not in control at all. We're not empowered. We are simply watching, listening to conversations, to discussions that are being had waiting, looking at the, at, at the walk and saying, well, I hope that they solve racism. Did they solve it yet? Can I be successful yet? Can I stop worrying that I'm going to get murdered by a cop? Can I apply to this job? Do you think that I'll get it this time? Do, I, do, you, do you think that I'm safe in the legal profession? Do you think I'll get promoted? Or will I get passed over and treated like crap? Mm -hmm. Right? And we're just constantly waiting, right? We're in this waiting game and it's completely like it's not going to work from a mental health perspective. We know that that just simply does not work. It, it kills spirits. It it kills any motivation that people have to to fight and, and and try to win anyway. Right. The whole aspect of black resilience and, and how I was able to 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 lift myself up. That whole idea of wow, it's not fair. But can I do anything about it? Can I still win somehow? And even though it's not fair and I shouldn't have to do X, Y, and Z to get there, what if I did X, Y, and Z? Can I win still? Because we're trying to live our life right now. Like, I don't know if we're all banking on the next life or, right? Like, maybe 200 years from now, we'll be in a better place with race relations. But I'm not going to bet my life on it happening anytime soon. And I don't think that anyone in the Black community should. I think we have to have a, a serious conversation in a huddle, a Black conversation and huddle. Um, and we have to start leading our own chart, right? We need to start becoming the authority on how to solve this problem and really increase levels of, of Black success, right, in our community. And it starts with the mentality. We need every single young Black boy and girl no matter what community, what project, what neighborhood, what city, what town, I don't care. Wherever you grew up, we need more Black boys and girls to grow up believing that they can do anything, that they can become an accountant or a doctor or a lawyer or a hedge fund manager or trade on Wall Street or become an engineer or an architect or do whatever the heck they want. But our communities right now, from a mental perspective, we're very limited and we're doing it largely to ourselves, right? Like, yes, the numbers are not good in these industries, but if you look at the attempts, right? If you look at how many of us are swinging the bat, those numbers need to increase. Um, and yes, the problem is still racism and largely it's described as systemic racism, right? The system is racist and therefore it doesn't produce enough black 
candidates in these areas. But it's a lot of it is driven by the fact that historically white industries, jobs, professions, there is a stigma in the black community surrounding those professions. We label them white. And that means a lot of different things. One, from a cultural perspective, labeling something white may mean that it's not cool, it's not preferred, it's lame, but it's also saying that we don't have a place there. We don't have a seat at the table there. It's too many white people there for someone like us to see there. And that kind of mentality is, is stifling, right? If you were a truly racist person, like if you were the, the evil racist who's like got their hands, you know, over the globe <laughs> and they're trying to figure out how to keep black people down, the number one thing that you would hope for is that that black boy or girl doesn't even try, right? right. Then you don't have to do anything, right? You want to just, if they just wouldn't try, that, that defeats 99% of the problem, right? right? And then the people who try, then we'll figure out how to get them out. But if we just as a, as a race, as a culture, um, all kind of got on the same page with, you know what? You're going to have to say no to me. You're going to have to shut the door on me because I'm going to do everything I can do. I'm going to put myself in a position to be successful. And I'm not going to be worried or or discouraged or defeated by the fact that it has been an unfair landscape. You know, there's no if, ands, or buts, right? Like, it is very different to reach levels of success uh, that I'm talking about in this country while black it's just different and it's been different for me and i'm sure it's been different for you Donzel. um but there is a way and you've done it and i've done it and i know thousands and thousands of other black americans personally who have done it and we all have a story we all have some advice we all have a little blueprints and strategies and i tried to package that up in a book um you know and be as concise as possible to inspire you know, next generations and even people right now who, you know, 30, 40 years old, um, trying to climb that ladder and are, and are facing some adversity to just kind of give them the tools and the encouragement that, you know, there is a way. Here are some tools that I can, that I can use as a tactic and, um, and let's keep fighting. That's powerful, man. Let, let's let this end this first segment on that note. There is a way for everyone. Not just those of us who are young, I still consider myself young, although I'm in my mid-50s, those of us who are around my age and those of us who are older, we all can make a difference and achieve our dreams. We just have to believe and put in the work. And you are a great example of that. We're going to take a break and come right back with my good friend, Braden Anderson. Visit us at joinarcc.org. Follow us on Instagram. LinkedIn and Twitter and like us on Facebook. All right, we're back on the Arc of Change with my good friend Braden Anderson. And Braden, uh, I now want to ask you if you could recount a story that I read in your book about uh, one of your professors who taught you what you called a deep lesson about dealing powerfully with bias. Can you share that story with our audience? Yeah, 
Yeah. And, you know, I think that there's a lot of corollaries for, for others out there who may have similar stories, things that, that they can, you know, certainly pick out and relate to. Um, but, you know, so while I was at Fresno State, you know, I'm an athlete. I'm on the basketball team. I had this class. It was a political science class after practice. And it was it was right after practice. And, and the gym was at least, I mean, it, it, I'm telling you, it was it was at least three quarters of a mile away. Right. right. Like it was on the complete other side of, of, of campus. Couldn't be farther away. Yep. Um, and I often showed up to this class a little late, a little sweaty, right? Cared about the class, but literally nothing I can do. Again, circumstances, I can't get out of practice early. Yeah. Right? Like, you know, um, but I, <laughs> I handed in my first paper um, and, you know, I'm a good student. Right? I, I'm, I think I got a three, eight at the time or something. Wow. You know, and, you know, I handed in my first paper and I cared about school, right? Like, so when I had... And just, just, hands real, up just in, real quick, was this why you were taking 33 hours? Or 33 no, this minutes? was before that. Before this was that. really okay. early on in, okay. my, in my, in my Fresno State uh, academic career. Uh, second or, or, I think it was my second semester. Second semester. Right? Okay, so very early. Um, really early on, you know, and, you know, I handed in my first paper and... I worked really hard on it. Like, you know, I, I felt pretty good about it. Right. Like I, I felt pretty dang good that this was, this was serious. I had, you know, peer, it was peer reviewed. Like I, I thought it was great and I get it back and I, it was an F. Right. And you know, F is like, F is crazy. Right. Like F is, Oh my good. Right. Like F. And so I look at, it, I'm like, what 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 is this, right? Because yeah. it's not an F, right? Like I would have been mad about a B, right? Right. Um, and so I took it back to him, and I was just like, like, what? What's the what? Yeah. <laughs> right? Because he was clearly um, trying to send you a message with that, no doubt about it. No, no doubt. It was just like, what? What happened here? Yeah. Right? Like, why is there an F on this piece of paper? <laughs> and he 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 looked at me in in a way that was just it was dismissive. Just kind of like you know, on there, right? Like that kind of look, like you know. And he was just like, "You didn't, right?" Um, kind of said to me like that, like you didn't. Should be lucky I don't expel you, right? Wow. Like that kind of attitude. Like, wow. you, just, you didn't write it. Um, and my response was, you know, I, I was pretty incredulous, right? Like I was just like, "What? Like I did write it? Like what are you talking about? Like why do you think that I didn't write this?" You know, there wasn't like it wasn't like he had like proof or like he. You know, I know that there's like some software, there's some programs now that people use, yeah, um, to yep. like sift it through to scan for stuff. Like there's nothing like that, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think what his assumption was was that like someone who works for the team, maybe a tutor, yep. someone in the guidance counseling, right, group, like someone in that department maybe tried to help me with it or something, which didn't happen. Right. Um, I wrote it myself and, you know, I was trying to explain to him, like, I can talk to you about it. I can like, quiz me on it. Like, I, I have all these opinions. Yeah. Right. Um, it was a very opinion based sort of, you know, uh, sort of project. And there was just no way, like I could tell that there was just no way that I was going to convince this human being that I was capable of writing wow. that this paper was capable of coming out of 
this yeah. body. Yeah. Right? Like he just didn't like it, it was like an error. It was like a <laughs> robot having a just right. error, like does not compute. This does not compute. This is impossible. <laughs> right. And I was super frustrated and I didn't handle it the best way. I, yeah. Right. Cause I had a chip on my shoulder. I'm like, I'm smart. Yeah. I wrote this and honestly, F you. Right. <laughs> right. Right. That's kind of the mentality. It was like literally F you. Yeah. I wrote this like you're a jerk. Yep. And so I essentially told him that. I was just like, I wrote this, F you. And I, you know, I, I essentially told him, you're not worth my time. I, I'm out of here. I know it's it was past the drop window. So I knew I, I, I couldn't drop without taking it out. Um, in hindsight, there's a million things I could have done better, yep. uh, which I did in the future, which I'll share after this. But I essentially told him, look me, you know, in a cocky kind of way, yep. a little bit of an arrogant way. It was like, look me up in 10 years. You're wrong. You're wrong today. And you're going to remember. You're going to remember me. Remember my name. You were wrong. <laughs> I, I wrote this paper. Yeah. Go, go look up my GPA. Go look up my, GP, my GPA yep. and, and look me up in 10 years. Um, you know, and I, I stormed out and I never <laughs> came back, um, which wasn't like the best way to handle that situation. But I think it's important to share that because that's how a lot of us feel. Yes. I, I, I've talked to so many people, so many young brothers and sisters who have been through situations like that. And that's, it, that's how it feels because life is hard anyway. Like right. he doesn't know how hard I scratch and clutch to just get to that opportunity. Just hand him that paper. Yeah. And I, and, and I wrote it and it was amazing. And, and now I got to deal with you saying I didn't write it right yes. after all the things I've been through. Right. Like that's what really frustrates us. Yes. Like that's what's stopping. Right. As a community, as a black yes. community, like that is a really real. And like, yes, it's that person who needs to do better. Right. That professor needs to do better. And there's a lot of professors like him that also need to do better. But we can't control whether we get that professor and we can't keep dropping classes and hoping that the next professor isn't racist. Right. We have to do something about it. And so the next semester, I tried something a little different. Honestly, with the assumption that every professor could be racist. Right. You just never know. That's right. <laughs> and I don't. And I not only do I not want this to happen again, I can't afford for it to happen again. Right. Right. I can't afford to get F's because a professor thinks I'm dumb or thinks I'm a cheater for no reason. Right. And of course, there's, you know, maybe I could have taken it up with the administration. Maybe I could have reported it and bought it up. But like, you know, who knows how that's going to go, number one. Right. Um, but so what I did the next semester is I, I essentially gave a little bit of a pitch, right? I treated it very job interview-like, uh, but even more than that, it was almost like a speech because I, I prepared really well. I had done a bunch of uh, research on the professor and I came in, waited, you know, first day of class, right, the next semester, waited for all the other students to go, like many keen students do. And But I wanted to be the last one to not embarrass her or whatever, wait till everybody left. Like, hey, can you talk to me for a second? Yeah, sure, whatever. And I was like, I just want to introduce myself. My name's Brayden. I'm on the basketball. Yeah. And I just want to let you know that, like, I'm not sure what experiences you've had in the past with student athletes, but I really care about school. I really care about my academics. I want to be a lawyer. I chose your class specifically. Like, no one made me take it. Like, I chose your class. Like, I read your study on behavioral theory and I found it super interesting and I blah, blah, blah. 
and like just tried to prove my identity in a five minute pitch or a two minute pitch or whatever it was, right? Probably about one and a half, two minutes. Yeah. Right. To kind of just give you a, a flavor. Here's my identity. Before you get it wrong, here it is. That's right. Right. Before you guess yes. and mess it up, here's a little bit of my identity um, to start with. Right. To make sure that there's a first impression that you, when you see me come in and I'm sweaty and a little late, that you don't just completely dismiss, completely just throw me in the trash bin of the class. Right. Because, you know, there's a lot of things I even mentioned. I was like, hey, and I know that, like, sometimes I'm going to have to miss class because yeah. we have an away game. Yeah. And like, sometimes I'm going to be late and like, it sucks. But I just want to let you know that, like, I appreciate the extra work that sometimes you have to put in because I missed something to help me make up a quiz. If I miss a class and I miss an exam, right, because of, we're traveling on the road and like people don't think about that. Like there's a lot of reasons why professors are annoyed by student athletes yeah. because a lot of student athletes don't care. Correct. I'm not one of them and you can't brush everybody with the same, with the, with the same color. Um, but I understand that, that could happen, that that could be annoying over yep. three decades of a, of a teaching career that you could get kind of burnt out and yeah. kind of annoyed. Yes. And, you know, and student athletes miss a, a class, they miss an exam, and then you got to chase them down to have a make up the exam. Like, it's hard. And if you feel like that person doesn't appreciate it, I can understand over time how you could develop a bias. And so, you know, I didn't say all of those things, but I just, I wanted to make sure that she understood that I got it, that I, I understood and, and I appreciated her and I saw her, right? That's the other piece of it, right? Is like through me sharing my own identity, it's also a little bit of like, hey, and I understand you. Like, yes. I understand like what it's like to be a professor and to yes. be working hard for students and trying to figure out which students to put the effort into and, and which ones, if you keep putting effort in, it's just going to burn you out because they don't care. And I'm someone who cares, right? Um, and that worked miraculously well, um, way better than I thought it would. <laughs> I literally, as I was telling her this, saw her like melt. I don't know if that makes sense, yeah, but like it makes sense. literally it was like she melted. She was like, oh, <laughs> yes. okay. Yeah, for sure. You know, there's just like a different way of, of, about her moving forward. And, um, you know, she had my back, like she had my back. She, believed I was a great student and like when you believe someone's a great student and they hand you work I'm telling you mental like it it all it's all connected bias you cannot be completely impartial you you have to work on right like we're all no one's perfect and I think that can be really helpful for a lot of us who are uh, more likely to be victims of of of, of bias mm -hmm. in, a, in a negative way um, to just understand that people are human, right? And that people are not perfect, but like, how can you help them get it right? No one wants to get things wrong. The yeah. other thing I've found, like most racism is not intentional. That doesn't make it okay. Right. But it's better than it being intentional. Right. That's way better. Exactly. You can work on it. You can help people through stuff. And it's not that it's our responsibility to do it. That's another thing, that be, right? It's like, it's not my response. It's not, it shouldn't be, right? Like, I get it, but it's not for them. It's for you. 
it's for us. It's for the culture. We're just trying to win. Yes. Right? Because if we can get better numbers in these industries and succeed at a higher clip, we'll be able to change how, how perception, we'll be able to change bias. We'll be able to change the narrative. That won't be a correct assumption anymore. Yes. Right? Yep. Um, and so, you know, we've seen it with the feminist movement. Women have done an incredible job with their movement and changing the narrative surrounding women. If you think women can't do what men can do, it's not that you're a feminist um, you're or not a feminist or whatever. You're just dumb. Right. If you don't think women can do what men can do, you just are not with the time. Right. And I think what we need to be focused on as a Black community and, and in Black culture is, is making sure that people are aware of that. There's too many people out there who think that they are right. right. Who think that, exactly. no, no, Black people really can't do these things. Like, no, you're dumb if yep. you think that. And we have to just figure out a way to impress that upon people. And I think it's it's one by one. It's opportunity by opportunity. And it's it's helping certain people, you know, it, one by one, reach their own personal dream, right? Whatever that looks like. It doesn't have to be doctor or lawyer. It's whatever it is that you want to accomplish. But it needs to be completely unrestricted by an, uh, any limiting ideology about what you think is going to stop you or or, you know, anything like that, right? <clears throat> you know, this idea that you've, you've, you've introduced around um, leveraging and building relationships for mutual success. I think you called it something like that in this book, which was kind of what, what happened with this professor. Um, it's so important in terms of helping those who believe that bias can't be changed, that we can't change people and get them to work with us. Yes, you can one person at a time through relationships by finding uh, areas of commonality for mutual success, erasing people's ignorance. Someone might be ignorant. They may not have ever seen or been around. I've been in that position where li literally no one ever has met. Some people had never met a black person before. All they saw was what they saw on the, on the news. Uh, then they meet me and all of a sudden the reality starts to change. And all of a sudden, you know, they start saying, okay, maybe there's an opportunity for mutual success. Because I help them on something. Next thing you know, they help me. Next thing you know, their whole mentality has changed. None of us can be successful without some help, no matter how smart and how confident we are. But we have to also have the confidence and the belief and the humble nature to recognize we've got to start by building those relationships like you did with that profession. That's kind of what we try to do, you know, here at ARC, man. So thank you for telling that story. I just think that's so powerful a lesson. And the other thing I think that's really important about what you're saying, especially from our young people who, you know, many of them have had tough circumstances like you're describing, some of them even tougher. And yet they strive and they work hard and then they get to a point and that professor doesn't believe they wrote the paper. Doesn't want to give them a little bit of help. You telling your story about, you know what? I didn't react well that day, but you didn't quit. You didn't leave the university. You didn't give up and say, hey, basketball is not for me. College is not for me. You found another way and you learned from it. So thank you for sharing that story, man. It is so can't important. It, you can't let it win, man. Right? No. Like that would be letting racism win. It'd be letting the system win. Right? Um, you, you can't, you can never give up. That's the only way that we can lose. I, I'm just, I'm telling you, that's the only way that we can lose. I, I've, I've proven it to myself and the world a ton of different times. Um, 
essentially the, the phrase that I like to, to say, you know, and it, it may sound a little bit extreme, but to me, it's, it's, it's real. And yeah. I think it's the appropriate level of, of intensity. But, you know, th- what I always say to myself, my kind of inner mantra is, you're going to have to kill me to stop. Yeah. Right? If I have a goal, if I have a dream, if I got something that I want to accomplish, if the rules of physics, if the laws of physics will allow this to happen on the planet Earth in this universe, I'm going to get it done or you're going to have to stop. Yes. Right. And and the only way you're going to stop me is kill. Me. Yes. And it's just like that kind of mentality because I've been so close to death. Right. Um, like I was close, man. Yeah. I saw the white light and everything. It it was I was close. And I think when when you're that close to dying, it puts life in a different perspective. And the little things don't matter. It's more like I don't care what you're going to throw in my way. I'm expecting Adversity, yes. challenges, problems, obstacles. Let it rip. Let's go. Right? Like I'm ready. I'm built. For this. You know what I've been through before? Yes. Look at my resume. Right? It's that kind of mentality. <laughs> like, and I just think everyone in the black community, we all have a resume. We've all been through more challenges and trauma than than any of our privileged peers. And what I've found, and I think what most people will find if you haven't already found this, is that it's actually a power. It's, yes. it's actually, it actually ends up becoming an advantage. Because if you're trying to stack someone like me up against somebody who's had a life of privilege, yes, it's going to be a blowout, man. It's going to be a blowout. You can't, you can't compete. You can't right. compete with somebody who's been through it, who's yes. got it out of the dirt. When you're handed something, you don't even know how you got it. Right. People who had to scratch and fight, claw, and grab every opportunity they had out of nothing, that person is just much more prepared to deal with the difficulties of life yes. and compete in any industry. Doesn't matter what it is. Man, that's that's so true. I I, I talked to a, a group of young high schoolers about two weeks ago. Um, to just kind of give them some perspective on what the possibilities in life could be. And most of them were um, folks who come from families that don't make a lot of money. They live below the poverty line. They're scratching and clawing. Uh, and they're trying to, 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 we're just trying to inspire them to stay in school, stay in high school, do the best you can and get to college because the world can open up for you. But one of the things I told them was this, that, hey, whether you're black or Cuban or Haitian, whether you're even a white kid, but you're going through these circumstances, believe me, most people you're competing with are not dealing with what you're dealing with. So if you can just stay with it, it might be a C today, but it's going to be a B tomorrow. It might not be an A on everything you do, but when you get through getting your education and you're in the real world and now hard stuff comes at you at work and there's no syllabus to tell you what to do, you can't pick up the mm-hmm. phone and call your mom. You can't go to your trust fund. You got to just do it. And it, you know what? You might fail, but you got to get up. You're going to win because you yeah. have been through the fire. What you say, and it's that special power. You're right on about that. You're, you're exactly right. And I think that you brought up an important part uh, as well with, with talking about school. Listen, school, it's not about it being for everyone, right? There, I think there's a lot of folks who say things like, school's just not for me. It's just not for me, bro. Like, right. school's not for me. 
you know, and, and that sort of narrative. And it's really, uh, it's sad because it's typically informed by really negative experiences in yes. the education system, bad relationships, bad situations with professors, not feeling seen and heard, dealing with a lot of time at home, trying to come to school and have some sort of safety, not feeling that and, and not feeling like it's coming to you easily because you didn't have the foundation, the framework to be successful. That's right. School is a building block, man. If yes. you didn't start at the same place as everybody else, it's going to be hard to pick up, right? If you didn't start out and go into a proper school all the way through where you learn each foundational skill, it's it's hard. It really yes. does become hard to catch up. I had to catch up. Yep. And it's hard. Yes. And I, I still would say I was never, like, that was never my strongest quality. My academic prowess was never my strongest quality. I ended up figuring it out. I ended up figuring it out well enough to do, you know, 3.5, right? You know, a couple A's for every B, right? Like I ended up being able to figure it out and be a decent student, right? A's and B's, pretty good, yep. but not a world beater, right? Not a world beater. Yep. Um, certainly didn't perform the level to get to Yale, right? Um, and be a shoe-in for the big firm. I had to come in a different way. Yes. I had to hustle to get to the big firm. Yep. Right. All my colleagues, Harvard, Yale, Columbia, that's pretty much it. Print, you know, it it star-studded resumes with from an academic standpoint. And that's the easier way to come in. But again, it's not the end. There's other ways to get in. Do well enough in school, check the box, understand that school's not for you. So what? Who cares? It doesn't need to be for you. Check the box. Got to get it box. done. Yes. Get it done. Life is long, and school is a real small part of it. Absolutely. Get it done. Get through the schooling aspect of it. And you think you're more of a, of a real-world beast? Get there. You got to get there. Get there with the qualifications, that little piece of paper that you need to get you in the game, right? Because you can't even get in the game and compete until you have those piece, those papers. So just thinking about it in that way that, hey, school doesn't need to be for me. It doesn't have to be jacked up into this thing that's bigger than it is. You just got to get this assignment done. Just got to do it. Get it done. Don't have to like it. Don't have to enjoy it. Got to do well on it. That's it. And I think fragmenting your mindset in 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 that way where you're just goal-oriented, yes. right? Um, it partially helped that I took a class um, – you know, within the forensic behavioral science space on, on just on motivation. It was a class essentially called like, you know, the, the psychology of motivation. And that was really fascinating. And I would, I would encourage a lot of folks to, to look up, you know, the psychology of, of motivation. How are humans, human beings motivated yes. to do things, right? To lift your hand up, to speak words, to get up in the morning, to eat, right? Like we need motivation. That's the fuel that drives us to do or not do anything, right? And there's a lot there to unpack. But, you know, I, I, I essentially learned that we're all capable of anything. You, It's about the mindset that you're in Absolutely. And, and how you're keeping yourself motivated to get to the next, uh, uh, the, the next plateau, the next checkpoint. Um, and you can train yourself to go longer and longer and longer without that dopamine release, right? The, the motivation receptors in the brain essentially work by you doing a thing for a long time, yep. and you're only doing it to get this, this release, this chemical release that is going to happen at some point, 
Yes. Right? And some of these things are small releases that happen just after every word that you say successfully. You get a little chemical um, reward. You, you eat a meal because you're hungry, right? You get the motivation. You get a little release from that. Other things like working a grueling job, trying to get your degree. You're doing a lot of things that aren't fun in the near term, right? But how long can you do that? Can you train yourself, yep. have the mental fortitude and toughness to, to hang in there long enough till you get the achievement, right? And, you know, just thinking about it that way, that not every single thing's got to be the, the big dopamine relief, right? Um, which is, is hard for a lot of young people today with video games and stuff. It's not helping, um, you know, train those, you know, the delayed gratification, uh, you know, functions of the brain, um, you know, but it, it, it's even more important that we work on it and that we yeah. talk about it. That's right. Clearly, you have found a way to stay extremely motivated. You started off talking about all the things that you're doing. You wrote a book. Lori had a big time law firm. Uh, you started several businesses. I'm understanding. You've got a nonprofit. Um, why is it important that you're doing all these things? Wh wh why? What? What is it important? Wh what's really important for you to have all of these things going at the same time? You know, I, I think for me, it's it's about gratitude. Um, because I've worked so hard and done and been through so much, um, I, I'm extremely grateful to have the platform that I do, to have the opportunities that I have. When you start out having nothing, absolutely nothing, and then I'm still the same human being who was was homeless, right, and sleeping on couches and, and under overpasses, and I, I think. For me, I, I still carry that with me in a really raw and and um, in, in meaningful way. And so, when you think about that person, like imagine someone who's homeless, and then they wake up randomly, and they're an attorney, yeah, the largest law firm in the world. They have they, they make a great income. They live in an amazing house. They got three kids. You know, they they have the financial stability to be able to do things. They have skills. They have all this stuff. It's like I'm living an amazing dream. That I worked yes. really, really hard to create for myself. Um, but it's 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 too exciting, right? It's too enticing. All the opportunities that are in front of me, um, and I'm too grateful that they're there to just leave them alone, right? Yes. So I have an opportunity to write a book and start a foundation to to try to help some people. I'll take that opportunity, man. Yes. It's it's incredible that I have that opportunity. I'm grateful for it. And I have an opportunity to to start some some restaurants, to start a, a coffee shop and a smash burger joint, a bar, and a live music and comedy venue. And wow. I'm grateful for the opportunity that I have to do that. Right. I've met some good people. I've learned some some great skills, you know, found some great real estate opportunities. Right. Like I'm just grateful for all the opportunities that are that are coming coming across and you know i i just constantly am doing an analysis of how could i get that done yeah um I, I don't think of ways to say no i think of ways to say yes um things that seem impossible or unlikely or statistically you just you know unlikely to happen or far-fetched or things like that like I, I just don't really care about that narrative surrounding it i'm not intimidated by something being hard or unlikely or 
no one's done it. I try to analyze whether it can possibly be done and whether I can possibly do that yep. and whether the reward is worth the effort. That's all I do every day, right? And there's, I, I'm not sure what I'll be doing 10 years from now or 20 years from now. Um, but, you know, you can be certain that I'm going to maintain my gratitude and just um, seek out and, and, and try to execute on, on every, you know, positive opportunity that, that, comes, uh, that comes my way. Yeah, well, you, you're moving fast because I, I, I was aware of the coffee shop. I had no idea you're doing a comedy club and restaurants and all. So you're yeah. making things happen, man. You mentioned yeah. your family. So how are you balancing your family life? Because, I mean, you've got a lot happening. How are you making sure you're spending time with your family so that everybody can out there can say, yes, he's also well-rounded as well? Yeah, I mean, listen, I, 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 I certainly try my best, like every parent out there who, you know, I have a my partner works as well. Um, and so, you know, you, you have, you know, parenting combo with two people with full-time job. It's hard, right? And I know that there's millions of, of Americans out there, black and white, who are dealing with the same thing. And it's not easy, right? It, it's not easy to do. Um, but but you just got to try to make it happen, right? Yeah. You, you try to find creative ways, like, you know, certain, certain of the ways are, I understand a luxury, right? We have a live-in nanny um, that helps a ton because I, I work remotely a lot. And so I'm here, even yeah. though I'm doing a lot of things, I'm still there, yes. right? Um, and there's two different types of presence uh, and people need to focus, really understand that. And um, you know, I'll, I'll get into what I was going to say. So first type of presence is physical presence. You're yeah. in the room, yes. right? You're in the room or you're in the house, you're around, yeah. right? Super important. It's not everything. There's another part of presence, right? But it's still important. Yes. The other part of presence is like moments where you are literally focused completely on your child. Yes. You are just looking at them. You're focused on them. You're talking to them. You're watching them. You are focused on. They need both of those things. Yes. Right? And obviously, the you know, you're looking at them kind of, of presence is extremely important. But the presence where you're just around is really important too, right? Um, because you can squeeze in the moments where you're looking at them, you're talking to them. You can squeeze it in 10 minutes here, 15 minutes there, five minutes here, maybe even just 30 seconds here. Yes. But you can squeeze it in throughout the day. I go downstairs to get water. I can go check, check in on my kids and see what's going on. I can, right, and I can tuck my kids in in bed get them started, you know, listening to an audio book or, or, or watching a show and, and bang out some work, come back and hang out with them again. Right. Like it's, it's one of those things where it just has to be a priority yep. and, and you got to figure out how to make it happen. But I will say, you know, of all the time, you know, the, the time periods in my life, this is the hardest time period at 30 years old with three young kids. This is the hardest time period because your kids need the most uh, in terms of attention. And I'm also at the most, you know, pivotal part of my career where I need to grind. I got to get things done. This, right. These are my years to to build, you know, to build a future and, and build a, you know, a, a nest egg. So, um, you know, you have to weigh all those things into account, um, but you don't want to forget to nurture the relationships with those amazing little people that you're building that retirement nest egg and, and trying to be successful financially for in the first place. 
Awesome, man. Thanks for sharing that. I want to, before we, before we end here, I want to make sure I ask you a couple other questions. Uh, one is how do we participate or how do people, our audience learn about your, uh, your nonprofit and participate? Yeah. So go to blackresiliencefoundation.com. Um, and you can, you can read about us and what we're doing. Um, the other aspect is I would say buy the book. I, I really, it's not a plug. It's not a financial plug. All the funds from, from book sales go to the foundation. It's not about selling for the profits of it. It's about books being the most effective way to spread a message, right? Because the message, although we've talked about a lot of really interesting things, and, and, you know, we're just kind of scratching the surface. Um, the book itself, you can just distribute more information than you can in a podcast or, or a quick conversation. So that's also a really easy way to disseminate the, the message more broadly. And so, you know, I'd say buy the book, read the book, you know, and, and share parts of the book that really moved you with other people, right? Um, you know, if there's someone in your life that you think could really benefit from it, if the book moved you and, and, and really spoke to you and motivated you and inspired you in any way, Share it with somebody else who you think uh, will also benefit from it. Um, and I think moving forward, it, it's about that Black resilience movement. It's about how many people does it take for meaningful change to happen? And for me, it's a million. I, I know for a fact, I've done a lot of research. If I can get a million Black Americans to read this book, wow, it will change the course of history. Um, it, it will, like, I don't want to, overstate it, but I don't want to understate it either. It will be significant um, because that's all it really is, really all, all it's going to take. Given our population, where we're at, we get a million black people to read this book. Not everybody's going to make the 180 and, and it's going to change their life, right? It's not, it's, but we don't need everybody, right? It's a, it's a statistical game, a certain percentage. It, you know, are, are going to really get it. And, and this is going to be the ingredient that they needed. This is going to be the one missing link that they needed to, to just set the world on fire and, and kill it. Um, and so that's really, that's all that I'm trying to accomplish through that. There's, you know, something called BX Talks, which we're starting, which is going to be a platform to just spread more messages of, of Black excellence and Black success and share more just unique stories of folks who have, you know, transcended obstacles to achieve success in various fields and professions. Um, one, to give a platform to those people, but also to, you know, provi provide representation uh, for Black communities to see more examples of, oh, I could do that. Oh, I could do that too. Oh, cool. How did, how did they do that? How did she do that? How did he do that? You know, because um, the more you're able to hear from, from other people who have been through something similar, it's like, you know, maybe I can make it out of it, right? Um, you know, and I think that's oftentimes all we need is is a little bit of hope. What a powerful message that you just left our audience with. I think we'll end it there because it was right on point. The challenge for a million, a million black folks to read this book. And I would challenge a million other folks to read this book. Uh, I want to thank Bray, Braden. I want to thank him for sharing his incredible and inspiring story with us and his perspective with us, which is so unique. He's been through so many challenges 
yet he kept coming back and not just to survive, but to set goals higher than anyone would imagine. Awesome. I want to thank him for writing Black Resilience, the blueprint for Black triumph in the face of racism, which I said earlier, I thoroughly read, I enjoyed. Uh, I think it's an incredible book that's an easy read, very approachable for the millions of folks that we're challenging to go read it. And I think it will encourage all of our listeners to also set super high goals for themselves. So go out and buy it ASAP, start reading it um, and pay attention to the lessons in there and look for how Braden has relentlessly stood up, spoke out and took action to help drive us to take action and for all of us to hashtag have black resilience and for, for him and others to illustrate how we can continue to move beyond hashtag black lives matter. Really important movement, but it's time for us to take action and make things happen for ourselves and remind everyone that black history didn't start with slavery. Started thousands of years ago with black excellence throughout the continent of Africa and the continent of Europe, the continent of Asia as well, and the Americas. We can rekindle that. Braden, you are truly an inspiration, an outstanding example of how one person can make a real difference. Thank you, my friend. I hope to have you back again soon. Thank you so much, Donzel. Amazing words and super grateful for the opportunity to be here. Visit us at joinarc.org to learn more about ARC. Donate to our cause and join the movement that will change the world. To find the Arc of Change podcast with Donzel Leggett and learn more about the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition, or ARC, please visit us at joinarc.org. You can also subscribe to the Arc of Change with Donzel Leggett on your favorite podcast hosting sites. I greatly look forward to our next episode, an opportunity to inspire you to become part of the movement that will change the world by eradicating racism once and for all. Until next time, stay safe and continue to ask yourself, am I doing enough? And remember that none of us are doing enough as long as racism and hate still exist. Thanks for listening and goodbye. The Arc of Change podcast with Donzel Leggett is brought to you by the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition. To learn more about Arc, donate to our cause and join the coalition, visit joinarcc.org. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode and share this podcast to help spread our mission to change the world by ending racism once and for all. Thanks for listening. Until next time, stay safe and be inspired.